0: good morning welcome back to the second hour of love babs love talk on babs rose ivy I'm delighted this morning to have Professor uh, Tom Tyler. He is the, uh, a Yale Law School professor who just was awarded the Stockholm uh, Prize in Criminology for pioneering research on legitimacy and procedural justice in policing democracies. Welcome. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Thank you. How are you? How was your holiday? Everything
1: really well. Pat. Yeah. Last light of fall, very pleasant.
0: It now is, isn't it? Sure. <laughs> I know, I know. And this is Connecticut, so we we are doubly blessed with this wonderful weather. So, yes. All yeah. right. So I I was reading your bio. Impressive. Um. Yeah. So the Stockholm the Stockholm uh uh prize in criminology is like the Oscars of the of that of that particular world, right? Like you get one of those things. It's like it's like the golden statue. Um, uh, and yes. Right. Like that's, that's, that's like a big deal. So, um, and uh, I had no idea uh, about uh, uh, uh the work that you were doing until I read your bio and I was quite impressed um, that really what you're, what you're, what you have identified and what you talk about in your research is the nature of interactions between uh, individuals and social institutions, including the police, including the police. So, so talk a little bit about um, historically what you have found out about uh, when the police interact with communities and with people,
1: sure. well, you know, I think we could best understand this if we started out by looking back to the bad old days of the 1980s and 1990s, when we had things like crack cocaine and high rates of violent crime, and the police and courts became focused on lowering the crime rate, and that was pretty much what they looked at: like, what's the crime rate? Are we lowering? in the immediate moment, like this month, you know, what are the crime st- statistics now? And what they weren't paying much attention to is how the people in the community felt about the police and felt about the way the police were dealing with them, treating them in their efforts to manage problems of crime. So my work pretty straightforwardly says that's a big mistake. And it's a big mistake first because trying to use force to control people is not such a great idea. It doesn't work better than trying to talk to people, trying to reason with people, trying to explain your policies, treating people with dignity and respect. And second, it doesn't really build any trust for the police in different communities, in any communities, but particularly disadvantaged communities, communities that have a really bad history of being poorly policed. So a better way to approach dealing with communities is for the police, for courts, for prosecutors to be focused on how the people in those communities experience law enforcement. Do they think they're being treated fairly do they think they're being treated with dignity and respect? Do they understand why things are happening? or policies explain? And if you do that, not only do you lower the crime rate in a more effective way, but you also build trust, you build partnerships with communities. And that pretty much summarizes the line of arguments that I've been pushing for the last 25 years with the point that As a researcher, I try to show it's true through research. In Mm -hmm. other words, I'm not just telling you that treating people with dignity and respect lowers the crime rate more than threatening them. I actually show that in my research. So there's an argument about how you ought to deal with communities, and then there's the evidence part. And here's the evidence that shows that that's true. So the Stockholm Prize recognizes the importance But my work, but also other people's work in broadening the way we think about the relationship between the police and the community and saying that that relationship should be about the police building trust in the community, which involves treating people fairly. If you want people to trust you, you have to treat them fairly and have to treat them fairly in terms that they understand to be fair. You can't just say, well, this I'm the police. This is what I think should be done. So you should just accept it. You have to actually talk to people, listen to people, think about what they say, explain your policies to them, discuss them, agree about them. So that's the shift in authority that's behind the work.
0: Well, you know, Professor Tyler, I could already hear the pushback because police will tell you this is a safety issue and that sounds very touchy-feely and that sounds like it, it it puts me in a place of danger or unsafety, and so how do you how do you how do you bring this research uh, to mm-hmm. police departments in a way that they can grasp what you're talking about and not feel like they're advocating safety for social work?
1: <laughs> no, and I think you're hitting on exactly what most police officers say initially, but you should know that research does not suggest that the current way the police deal with people makes them safer. They may feel safe, but that's not actually what the studies show, they don't. In fact, if you approach people with a, we call it a command and control, a dominance model, like I have power and I'm gonna tell you what to do, 30% of the time you provoke active resistance people that you're dealing with, and those active resistance events are what lead to the kinds of tragedies that we see all too often, where the police seriously injure or kill someone. So it's true that the police do often say, you're making, putting me at risk, you're making a dangerous situation for me. And what I say to them is, well, I, I know you feel that way, but here's some evidence that you're not right. The other thing to remember along the same lines is, even in the most violent communities, only about 6% of the people in the community are actively engaged in violence. So if you approach everybody in a community as if they're a dangerous felon who's about to kill you, 94% of the time you're wrong. And when you approach those people in a dominating, force-based way, they don't want to cooperate with you so one of the things that we find when the police create a culture of trust is clearance rates go up because people help them people say well i know where the criminal is i know who did that so that also is something that the police constantly constantly complain about that we don't get any cooperation from the community that makes their lives dangerous because they're not able to apprehend people and this helps them that way so i think you can make a case that even from the point of view of the police, this is a better strategy. And of course, my concern is also from the point of the community, it's a much better strategy because it's much less dangerous to the people in the community who are less likely to be injured in these incidents with the police.
0: So, So mm-hmm. Professor Tyler, are there communities that this is an easier do than in some communities? Like I would imagine they don't have a policing problem in like Westport or Greenwich or 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 any place like that but but I would I would say New Haven has a policing problem Hartford has a policing problem and and you know Bridgeport has a policing problem Are, am I am I looking at this the right sort of way yes well it's true that suburban
1: communities where people have high income and steady jobs tend to have lower crime rates. And we all know that crime comes out of poverty. So if communities have a larger proportion of people who are struggling economically, then they have higher crime rates. And unfortunately, those are often communities with the history of bad relations with the police. So people don't trust the police anyway. And what we find is this strategy still works in those communities. It's just a longer term strategy. If people don't trust you in the beginning, you have to work harder to earn their trust. If people trust you already, it's less of a problem. But I would say that we have done research in many communities that are communities that have high rates of poverty. um, And this strategy still is effective in improving police community relations. But I don't want to deny what you're saying, which is if you're dealing with communities where people are struggling, and where they mistrust the police because of the history of or relations with the police, it takes longer, it's harder. So the police have to hang in there, they have to work on it, and we find it in, in many communities. Just an example, Oakland, California, very successful strategy in the community that has had a long history of conflict between the police and the community. Because the police have been hanging in there, you know, they've been working on this over time. So this is not a strategy where you just turn on a light switch and
0: suddenly people trust the police. You have to work on it. Um, Well, you know, in New Haven, you know, some years ago, at least 25 years ago, you know, we started this idea of community policing where just what you're talking about, that the community would be better partners with folks in community in ways to sort of protect and serve. And and for a hot minute, I think that that idea worked, but then, you know, you have a changing of the guards, Professor Tyler, and, and some folks are not on that page with that kind of thinking around policing. There are people who hold old-fashioned views on what policing is. And, and so the culture um, never catches up with, Uh, this kind of community-based policing initiative? Well, the biggest problem
1: that we have had in our efforts to change community police relations is exactly what you said. The average length of time that a police chief is a police chief in a city is about three years. So you're constantly seeing this churning of police chiefs across time. And that makes it hard to have continuity. So you need continuity on the city council level, mayor's level, not just the police chief, but yes, it's been a challenge in those cities where there hasn't been consistency. It hasn't, there hasn't been much progress. I can only say as a way of expressing hope that those cities that have been persistent in their efforts have seen real change. You know, the other aspect of this that you're mentioning is community policing it's true that most of the police cars that drive by in many cities say community policing on them but you have to go back and realize that that's because the federal government gave local police departments a lot of money if they would say they were in favor of community policing and recent research of community policing programs has suggested that there's like no coherent structure to what they meant by that so some police departments they know, will have bicycle patrols or other police departments will have a youth camp and some of our officers will be youth camp officers. So there's no coherence in how the police departments have actually implemented this vague concept of community policing. So if you look at it from my point of view, I can't be responsible for the fact that people who can do it from my point of view the right way, it didn't work. I can only say that the programs that we have supported have been studied by research and found to promote changes, like changes in the number of civilian complaints against the police, changes in the number of uses of force by the police. So change is possible, but again, you're putting your finger right on the biggest problem in American policing, which is the the churning, the constant churning of police chiefs, um, which makes continuity of change really challenging.
0: So where do you think change can happen? I mean, is is change uh do do you put this research in academies, police academies, so that they learn from from the onset that this this is something um that we can build into policing? Do you do you take this research to the federal level and say, like when y'all dole out money? There, here are some parameters in which you can you you can get police departments to sort of be about community policing. like where where does this research go and and how useful can it be in changing culture?
1: Well, the research can be useful in changing culture when there's a will to change the culture. And I want to speak very respectfully of uh, President Obama. When he was the president, I think he made the most systematic efforts that we've seen to try to use the federal government to change the culture of policing. For example, I work at the Justice Collaboratory at Yale. We created training for police departments that we gave to the federal government and the Obama administration was basically passing it out all over the country, hundreds of departments were using it. Uh, Departments like Chicago and New York have taken some of this training and used it. And that has, where that has been done, we've shown that actually it's changed the culture of policing. The problem again has been this churning. So when the Trump administration came in, they weren't interested in police reform, so they weren't doing this anymore. And now I would say the Biden administration, is, I would describe them, as very ambiguous in whether they actually support police reform or not. So if there is an effort on the federal level that can have a big impact and that can have a national impact. As I'm sure you're aware, one of the biggest problems we face is the local nature of policing in America. There's over 18,000 police departments in the United States, and over half of them have left from less than 50 officers. So all across the country, we have all these small departments. And if the federal government doesn't lead the way to change, it's hard to reach all those departments.
0: Hmm. All right, so so Professor Tyler, how do you, how do we do with the the public relations impl- implica- implications of this? Because I would imagine um when you when you talk to communities, all they want is safety and if you and if they start to feel like um police are are not going to are, are going to be less ready to shoot and kill. <laughs> And and more yeah. ready to just talk yeah. talk to somebody who's committing crimes or whatever. That's people in the community and people outside of communities are going to be like, that's soft, like that's soft. And I want I want a militarized police presence because it makes me feel safer when I walk down the street. And I want to see I want to see militarized uh, a police force.
1: Yes, one of the biggest problems that we have is communicating research findings to people who are frightened. And that is our job, that is our effort. It's challenging. You know, I think a good example of that is recent efforts by some political figures in New York to scare everyone by saying crime is rising. Crime today is about 20, 25% what it was in the 1980s. And that includes violent crime. So You know, we live in an era of actually low crime, but people's fear of crime hasn't gone down at all since the 1980s. So their fears have not much of a connection to reality. And that doesn't mean they're not real. I mean, it means that's the way they feel. But so we work to try to communicate to people first that the danger is not as extreme as you imagine it is, that you are safer than you think you are, but also to communicate to people that a lot of things that you might imagine could work, don't work. And I'll give one example that I think it's been very much in the political picture, uh, scared straight camps. You know, there are these camps where you take kids that do something wrong and you throw them in with hardened prisoners and you try to scare them with the idea that, look, this is where you're gonna turn out if you don't shape up. There's lots and lots of research that shows they absolutely do not work at all. And they don't you know they do do any good whatsoever. But still, they sound great. It sounds like sticking some kid in prison would scare him and, or hurt, and they wouldn't commit crimes again. No, that's not true at all. So again, we have to like communicate truth and try to show people that the evidence is not there. I think one of the most challenging problems we have in America, why do the police carry guns? You might say, well, they want to make everybody safe. But studies that compare the American police to the police in countries where they don't carry guns does not support the argument that the police are safer or the public is safer with armed police officers. Again, that's true, but try to tell somebody that. I mean, try to convince an American that not having a gun, it could still be safe. But why is that true? It's because the mere fact of having guns raises the, the tempo of anger, conflict, which often leads to shooting, stabbing, beating up. And without guns, there's much more of a tendency to try to talk, compromise, calm things down. So there are a lot of myths that exist in America that are not particularly helpful. And I think part of our job is to try to communicate to people what's truth. And then try to suggest the implications of that truth for how we might do
0: policy. Whoa, whoa, Professor Tyler. Let me tell you something. I'm gonna get a gazillion letters from the pro-gun people. <laughs> the, you know, America has a gun sickness. We have a we have a gun disease in this country, and there is I just don't believe there's any way that you can convince anybody that guns are not a tool of safety. I it just they just, it's just ingrained. It's, it's how the West was won. It's, 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 you know, it's all these, it's, it's all these things that are are ingrained in people, you know, keep a gun in your house and a firearm here. And, and, and I can't imagine a, a police force without firearms. So that's a, that's a hard pushback. Like that's a hard, hard yes, pushback. I agree with you. And, you know, you just mentioned another
1: what's the most likely consequence of buying a gun and putting it in your house? It's that the criminal will take it away from you and shoot. That's what the research shows. I mean, it doesn't actually make people safer. It makes their life more dangerous. But again, it's hard to convince people. But I would say that one thing that we have had more success with is trying to look for kind of win-win situations and one of the best win-win situations from my point of view is trying to improve the life of police officers. So if I say that the things that I'm telling you help the police to deal better with the community, okay, but how about if I say that the things I'm telling you make the life of police officers better? Well, that's what we find. Policing is a really stressful job. Police officers die young, they die from heart attacks, they die from drug use, from alcoholism, they have divorce, they have just a whole range of the things that are caused by constantly living in a stressful, frightening environment. If the police adopt the strategies that we're talking about, their health gets better because their life is less stressful. Everyone they deal with is not mad at them, not fighting with them, they can establish positive relationships with people. They can cooperate with people. So if you just said, what would be good for police officers? This, these strategies are better for police officers. And so when we approach police departments or police unions, we emphasize the benefits for their members. And there are, of course, as I mentioned, also benefits for the community. But here, the point is, if you want change. You look for win-wins. So this is a win for the police. It's a win for the community, and I think that kind of argument they get us further than trying to convince people that they shouldn't have guns.
0: Mm. So, so, so where could where could this start? Like where where do you start with this conversation? Does it start with police unions? Does it start with uh, cities and towns and legislative leadership? Like, like where is the beginning of opening the conversation about police safety, police mental health? Because I think that's a great way to frame out changing the culture of policing. When you, when you, when you say, you know, the way to keep police safe is to provide opportunities for them to have a a, a better better uh, uh, care of themselves.
1: Right. And so, you know, what we try to emphasize when we deal with police departments and like in our training program is that you you can have a better life. Here's a way to deal with the community. Here's a way to organize the police department that will make your life better. And ironically, often the challenge is the chiefs who have been trained in this Military command and control style of leadership where they don't understand the value of actually treating their officers the way they're telling their officers they should treat the community. Like most line officers that we talk to and say, my chief never listens to me, never asks me what I think, isn't interest in my opinion, will throw me under the bus for a nickel, don't trust them. So, police chiefs can change the culture of their departments by enacting some of the ideas of fairness that we're talking about. Listening to people, explaining policies and practices, treating people and their concerns with respect, and generally being the kind of person that you would trust to have your back, to care about what happens to you. If, if the leadership does that, then they promote a healthy climate in their department and we find that that rolls out into a community into the way the officers treat the community
0: wow so so does it help if if, if boards of police commissioners and civilian review boards sort of uh understand this research and sort of uh uh, uh sets a tone that we expect this to be implemented or or um consider this this new way of thinking about policing and community policing like does that is that a good way to go about this too can can that have some effect
1: i think that that would be great and could only have a positive effect a good example of that is new haven where the police commission has been in partnership with the police department making that kind of message part of what they say and i know the chief has thought about that, has implemented some of those ideas. So yes, I think that having some kind of civilian review board or commission that can speak to the police is a good thing. It's part of sharing responsibility. If you look at the departments that have been successful in change, and used to example, Stockton and Oakland, California, the thing that has been central to their success is a partnership between the police and the community where you have commissions, you have public groups, and you have the department working together to talk about change. So nobody is in control, they're cooperating. And over time, this has been the most effective model for producing change. And in order to do that, yes, you have to have the community. There has to be a commission or some, some community forum where the community can express itself to the city, to the police,
0: in a sustained way. Mm.
1: I'm,
0: I'm, I, you know, I, I, I deliberately did not lead with talking to you about how race plays out in these, in these matters because I, I wanted to sort of lay a foundation for talking about policing. But now I wanna add, so how does race and, and, and the idea of race um, overlay on uh, race on top of this uh, plays out? And what does the research tell us? Well, I'm glad that you put it that way, because the point I always make is,
1: even if the police didn't treat minorities worse than white people, we'd still have a lot of room for reform police policing, but the police do treat minorities worse than white people, and that's a separate and additional issue that we have to try to deal with. There's a long history, obviously, of the police in our society, in American society, being the, the group that Kept subordinated groups down, whether it's the police enforcing slave laws in um, American cities in the early 20th century. The police were the people who were beating up strikers on behalf of the owners of the industries. The police have been the agents of social control for whoever was running different communities throughout American history. And obviously. Often the people who are running communities are not minorities. They're the the white establishment. So the brunt of police control efforts has been directed towards minority groups. And it's an interesting finding in uh, the work on New York City during the stop, question, and frisk era. Who did the police stop, question, and and frisk? What's the best predictor? It's not the crime rate of the area where they live. It's the proportion of people in a given police district that are not white. The highly non-white groups got stopped, questioned, searched more often, controlling for any kind of crime rate. So it was clearly some sort of a, an effort directed at minority groups, not explained by the police just trying to control crime. And I don't think you'd, you know, you'd say that's only New York. I think that's in a general pattern as long as we've had American history. So we are constantly including in our efforts, training on bias, a part of the training program that I mentioned that we worked with the federal government on. Phil Goff, Center for Policing Equity worked with us. We had a module on implicit bias, how to understand it, how to recognize it, how to deal with it. So we are trying to bring in issues of bias in addition to these issues of treating people justly, because I they think they're both related to police community relations. People are not going to have good relations with the police in their community if they think the police are racist. And unfortunately, in the past, certainly often they have a racist.
0: Mm. So so, Professor Tyler, you've been doing this for some time now. What what does the future look like? Can 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 this research predict a future, an alternate future, a dystopian future. Like, like where where do we where where could we end up? Yes, no, maybe, you know, if we change, we could be here. If we don't change, we could be there. What does it tell you? I would think the most
1: promising aspect of the work that I've done is that if the police treat people in the community fairly and people in the community come to trust and feel the police are legitimate, it doesn't just lower the crime rate, and it doesn't just cause people to be more willing to help the police identify criminals. It also supports efforts to build strong communities. So if people live in a community where they trust the police, they're more willing to engage in that community economically, they have stronger associations with other people in the community. They participate more in local politics. So the police can have a role to build communities. That has nothing particularly specific way to do with fighting crime. It has to do with creating a climate within which people feel safe. And as we just said earlier, safety is not the same thing as crime rates. People feel safe, they engage in their community. If they engage in their community, their community develops. So I think the future lies in focusing the police on how they can have a productive role in building communities. Now, the flip side of that is to say to the police, since the crime rate is so low, why do we have all you guys around? What, what function are you playing in the community? There's as many police officers in America today as there were in 1980, when the crime rate was four times as high. What useful function are the police playing in communities that are strapped for money? Right now, that function is to fight crime. But if the police can understand this strategy as a way to have a different set of goals for themselves, they can become important efforts to develop communities. And I think that's what we all really want is for communities to develop over time, economically, socially, politically, so that, to me, is a future course that involves communities holding the police more to account for a broader set of votes. Today, wow. for most police departments, it's only about what's the crime rate. And I think hmm. that's too limited.
0: Well, I so appreciate this conversation, Professor Tyler. You have to come back, because there's more that I want to ask. <laughs> there's more that I want to talk about in this larger uh, picture. Uh, around policing and the future of policing, um, so I, I so I so appreciate this conversation and the work that you've done, and uh, gosh, this is fascinating stuff. It really is, and I wish that uh, uh, the, the the wider community could have better access to what the research tells us, and maybe that'd go a long way at swaging fears of, of of a police state.
1: <laughs> well, it's great to have a chance to talk to you, and I think you speak to that broader audience, so.
0: You have my message. I have mm-hmm. it. Thank you very much, Professor Tyler. And congratulations on the Oscars of, uh, you know. the <laughs> the, tell you the funniest thing about it,
1: maybe as a final story. Everyone seems most excited by the fact that this is being given to me by the Queen of Sweden. I think <laughs> a lot of people have no idea where I'm getting the support, but everyone's very excited that I get to meet the
0: Queen. well you know everybody loves a good fairy tale. you know what i mean like we (laughs) you know americans have i don't know if it's an unhealthy fascination with monarchies and royalty but we do so you know so yeah so make sure you take a good selfie with the with the queen (laughs) thank you so much for being on today and happy holidays and uh and uh thank beth parker for coordinating this and feel free to come back anytime Okay, thank you. Good to be here. Thank you. Good to see you. All right. Thank you, Harry Drones. I will be back tomorrow. Tomorrow's Friday, y'all. So, y'all have a good weekend. I mean, a good night. I'll be at the theater tonight. I'll talk about the salvages tomorrow. I will start Avent tomorrow. So, y'all be good, and I'll see y'all soon. Thank you, Professor Tyler. We'll